0: What is the role of business within society? How do we build organisations that contribute responsibly and sustainably to the communities in which they operate? And what does responsible leadership look like as we continue to lurch from crisis to crisis? This is the Responsible Business Leading the Way podcast from the University of Bristol Business School, working with the CIPD. I'm Katie Jacobs. I work for the CIPD. And over the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, I collaborated with Professor Veronica Hope-Haley, Dean of the University of Bristol Business School, on a landmark research project. Between spring 2020 and autumn 2022, we spoke to more than 150 leaders during what was, at least at the time, the most challenging period of their leadership careers, guiding their organisations and people through a destructive, unprecedented pandemic and the subsequent economic fallout. We wanted to know... What did it feel like to lead an organisation through such a challenging period? To be responsible for the livelihoods, even lives, of those working for you? How did it shift the way people felt about their employers and work in general? And did it transform the very concept of what it means to be a responsible business and how a business intersects with the society in which it operates? When we published our third and final research report, we concluded that when it came to building more responsible, resilient businesses, and a fairer, more equitable society, there is still everything to play for. So that's what we're exploring in this series. Over the next six episodes, Veronica and I are sitting down with some of the most insightful and inspirational leaders we spoke to in our original research to ask, in the aftermath of the pandemic, what has changed about how we work, how we lead, and how we think about responsibility and trust in business? Episode 2 the new rules of work, how the psychological contract is evolving. We all know what we've been through. And coming back from that, there's been a mind shift in terms of, I need to think about myself a little bit more because life is too short and times are too uncertain. That's a chief people officer reflecting on the impact the pandemic was having on how people feel about work when Veronica and I spoke to her last year. We all know what we've been through. Casting your mind back to summer 2020 and everything that followed can be difficult on many levels for many people. If you're listening to this, you lived through a life-altering traumatic experience. It's an experience that forced a reassessment of what really matters, and that naturally includes the role that work plays in our lives. People have chosen to change careers, to move countries, to opt out of work entirely. That great rethink led organisations to emerge from the worst of the pandemic into the most challenging labour market many leaders can remember. But beyond that, something had fundamentally shifted in how people felt about work, in what we believe we are owed by our employer and are willing to give in return, also known as a psychological contract. The leaders we spoke to in our research identified a range of challenges stemming from the evolution of this contract. Tensions between individual preferences and collective benefit. Raised expectations of what an employer should offer and accommodate. A need to re-engage and reconnect with people. And a question over how paternalistic an employer can afford to be during an economic crisis. So, with the world of work remaining in a state of flux, how do leaders tackle these challenges? What does the future of the psychological contract look like? And what do all of us, whether leader, manager or colleague, owe to each other when it comes to being an upstanding member of a work community. To discuss these questions, Veronica and I were joined by Jane Cathrell, Executive Director of People and Culture at the Bank of England. I began the conversation by asking both Veronica and Jane to share their observations on how surviving a pandemic has shifted how people feel about work. Veronica
1: first. During the pandemic, the way that people's feeling towards work and family shifted was that everybody felt really vulnerable and scared and actually became understandably oriented towards their family or close friends. So the personal became the priority and neither frontline nor working from home were ideal situations. Everybody had challenges wherever they were during the height of the pandemic.
2: I think there's been a combination of a series of societal shocks, whether it's the pandemic, increased cost of living, increased social justice activism. And both employees and employers have had to adapt. During the pandemic, employers were very focused on the needs of employees as we all adapted to a very different way of working. Since then, as restrictions were eased, there has had to be an adjustment and uh, employers and employees have been drawing new sets of boundaries, which are informed by their experience now of what was possible during the pandemic. And that resetting of the relationship between employers and employees, I think, is something that's ongoing. One
0: noticeable shift both Veronica and Jane agreed, was how the pandemic raised the expectations staff had of their leaders, particularly around transparent communication and ease of access. While positive, some leaders are now finding it hard to manage the competing demands on their time with the expectation of availability. But also inherent in these shifting dynamics comes the increasingly tricky balance, even tension, between the needs of the individual, that's personal preference, and the needs of the organisation as a collective,
1: as Veronica explains. This balance between the needs of the individual and the needs of the collective is just fascinating me at the moment. I'm working with a major national institution at the moment, and in doing that research, I've had the opportunity to spend time with the Cambridge philosopher Baroness Honora O'Neill She has a really interesting perspective on this, which is that as a society, we have got a lot more concerned with our rights and that we are beginning to forget our duties and our obligations. And she says, thinking about what you ought to get is so much more charming than thinking about what you ought to do. I just love that. So it's much easier to think, what does the Bank of England owe me as an employee? What are my rights to flexible working, et cetera, et cetera? But if we flip it round and we think about our obligations to each other, um, obviously an employer has obligations, but so does an employee. And they extend beyond just the task. They extend into what does it mean to be a workplace community? And I remember a senior director explaining to me that they might know how to do their job extremely well. They'd got 25 years experience. They could certainly do it from home, but they had an obligation to junior employees to be in the workplace so that those junior employees could learn from them. It Doesn't mean they needed to be in the workplace five days a week All through the day but there is something about what are our obligations and duties one to
0: another. Ah, the question of how often someone should be in a workplace. It continues to be a pretty fraught discussion in many organisations and even politically. Stories about people being forced back into offices or workplaces lying empty and dormant continue to hit the headlines. But the real debate is far more nuanced than how many days is the correct number. Let's hear from Jane on how this is playing out in practice in one of the UK's most scrutinised organisations.
2: Individuals do now have higher expectations that their individual needs should and will be accommodated in the workplace. They've seen how it can work and I think this has opened up challenges for leaders across all organisations in terms of how they respond to that. And that transition from that pandemic period where, ironically, it was actually easier to do some of this stuff because people were largely working remotely. I think in terms of how we start to reset the relationship as we've come out of that, I think from an employer point of view, both Dialogue and learning are absolutely key. I know when we set about starting to redefine the expectations of ways of working as an organization, we conducted extensive research as an organization and spoke to people across the organisation and really listen to the views of our employees. And, of course, the result is not a homogenous picture. You've got different people from different backgrounds in different roles, unsurprisingly wanting different things. Also, different employees are drawing the lines about what works for them according to their needs. I think really being very thoughtful about the experience of other organisations, having really listened to employees, we wanted to strike a a balance. Flexibility has always been a really important part of the Bank of England's offering to employees and to acknowledge though that our workforce is a community or series of communities is also important. Part of the experience of working at the bank is that we have responsibilities to the whole as well as to the individual. Any debate about hybrid working
0: needs to acknowledge the clear yet often overlooked fact that the majority of the UK workforce simply don't have the luxury of choice around where they work. And beyond that, we also need to remember the sheer variety and disparity of experiences people have lived through over the past three years. As Veronica explains...
1: We were all in the same storm, but never in the same boat. Some people have had a great time with the dog and the children. Some people have gone through enormous grief and for whom it's been traumatic. Some people haven't seen their families in the other side of the world for months and months. It's a different experience. How are we going to build a community unless we acknowledge that the different experiences people have gone through and the different needs that people have now from that community?
0: And as well as understanding with compassion and empathy the different experiences people have gone through, leaders also need to consider the importance of shared purpose in building a strong work community. Let's hear more from Jane on the power of purpose.
2: That sense of community has to stem from a sense of shared purpose that is really focusing on why We exist as an organisation, why as individuals we're choosing to uh, engage with an organisation. As well as that shared purpose, I do believe that personal connections are key and we need to think really carefully about how we make them. At the bank, our ways of working norms sort of focus not just on the balance between the time people spend in the office and remotely, but also focus on some of the human factors. So those are putting the team first, being able to behave in a way that includes everybody and gets people together. I think those elements of our norms are really necessary to foster those personal connections. And I think it's that sense of shared purpose together with those personal connections, which are really key. One example of leveraging
0: personal connections and shared purpose into a vibrant work community can be found within universities, Veronica feels, where academics have been working in a hybrid manner for decades, but where a sense of corporate citizenship remains strong.
1: There are some things that are just non-negotiable. If you're teaching, you're teaching, and my faculty will pull themselves in. Even, you know, whatever they turn up to teach face-to-face and that is a sort of complete non-negotiable and then the second thing is that we have very very clear community points of celebration where we come together it may be graduations it may be award ceremonies for best teachers or whatever and we unashamedly have a lot of celebrations where we bring people together and we've been doing that for decades your participation in all those ceremonies measures your citizenship, if that makes sense. And in some universities, citizenship and your contribution to the community is used as one criteria for promotion. And that is also another interesting way of how do we go forward in this post-pandemic world. Yes, you can have some flexible working, But we may need to be more formal and overt and transparent about citizenship. And yes, it does count. Yes, it is going to play a part in how we consider youthful promotion. And in addition to those kind of expectations, there are simple ways to
0: bring purpose to life, making people feel part of something bigger, says Jane.
2: I have been involved with one of our charities of the year over the last couple of years, And one of the things that they do at their board meetings is they are a children's hospice and they tell a story at the beginning of each of their board meetings about one of the children that they're supporting or one of the families that they're supporting in their community. That simple, very powerful thing really brings it home, the purpose of the organisation. Likewise, at the Bank of England, our outreach programmes, we have citizens' panels where we engage with people across the UK to really understand their real lived experience of the economy on a day-to-day basis. For The staff that are involved in that really brings it home about why we do what we do.
0: If expectations of employees are that they should be an active part of a community, what then is the expectation of the employer? During the pandemic, many employers displayed heightened paternalism, driven by the desire to protect staff, the pandemic creating what the Financial Times dubbed corporate intimacy, and a pragmatic need to attract and retain talent in a tight labour market. But with the worst of the pandemic now behind us, and organisations facing an economic crisis, how paternalistic can and should employers be? And how do we create a system of mutual accountability?
2: Here's Jane. I think a very parent-child relationship isn't helpful in a world where people need to be able to flex and adapt because of the pace of change that, that we're all facing. But I do think their organisations need to be able to agree what the boundaries are within which people are going to operate. We've talked about responsible business. I think we also need responsible colleagues and responsible employees because I think that responsibility has to go both ways and organisations that want to create communities, Uh, however they decide to do it, whatever the mix is between remote working or uh, based, whatever the nature of the work, I, I think the effort to be able to make those personal connections, create those communities, but to equip people to be able to find their own way through, to adapt and learn together, I think is really important. And so whilst I do think there is, you know, a responsible business is one that cares about the well-being of its employees, that wants everybody to feel a sense of belonging to the organisation and can create the environment and provide tools and equip people to be able to do that, equally, the employees, colleagues need to be able to make some of that running for themselves and organizations need to get that balance of responsibility correct so a responsible business is not one that just stops bad things happening and looks after everybody a responsible business is one that balances that responsibility with the people that work within it and they share that responsibility for learning and adapting over time I think Organisations do have responsibilities to look after the people in their community, but equally there are responsibilities for the individuals as well.
0: Part of that responsibility for individuals is around how we show up in the work community. And in a society that is becoming increasingly polarised, some leaders have noticed a rise in petty grievances within the wider workforce. Have we lost the art of compromise, forgotten how to play nicely with others after years of enforced isolation? What impact does the rise of online communication have? And how should employers handle
2: this? Let's hear from Jane, then Veronica. We can't rely as much on some of the formal processes to be able to resolve issues. So whether it's a sort of grievance process or it's a whistleblowing process, Actually, some of those are now increasingly feeling a bit nuclear, a bit confrontational. And whilst absolutely they have their place, what we want to do is to equip leaders and colleagues with more tools and more ways to be able to resolve conflicts wherever they arise from, without the need to the recourse to the very formal uh, processes. So starting to think about how we support our leaders, how we support individuals to be able to have those conversations, whether it be through things like mediation or equipping people to have more constructive, timely conversations to provide feedback, to give people the language to be able to talk about what behaviours are appropriate and what are not. I suspect we were on this road anyway, increasingly in a world where employees are more prepared to speak up, conscious of their rights, more conscious of potentially where inequity exists. As an employer, I think we need to be able to equip people to resolve those sorts of things without the recourse to some of the very, very formal processes.
1: I was chairing a meeting yesterday and we just had a a situation and by default, somebody went, well, I'll send them an email. And I went, don't send them an email. Pick up the phone, go down the corridor, find the office. This is not something that is dealt with over a Teams chat or an email or, you know, texting or WhatsApp. So I do think we're in danger of of just relying on the forms of communication that we did at the height of the pandemic. And some things are so much better resolved, just face-to-face, human-to-human, colleague to colleague. Don't fan the flames with a really perhaps ill-thought, rapidly sent email, stick your head around the door and go, do you have time for a cup of coffee? And of course that is then also why it's so good to get people back into the office some of the time, because it's so much easier to do. It's less formal than scheduling a Teams meeting. Since 2020, the rules
0: of work have been torn up. The norms many leaders used to rely on simply no longer work. And for many, it's been a destabilising, challenging time. In this state of flux, some may find themselves desperately hoping for things to get back to normal. But what is normal now anyway? And could we ever go back? Veronica is unequivocal on this one.
1: My original area is organisational change. For me, this is really, really clear. We had how we worked before the pandemic. We had how we worked during the pandemic the height of the pandemic. We now are in a third stage where we are renegotiating a new way of operating as organisations. We are in a process of transition and I think what I would exhort anybody listening to this podcast to do is to start to think about the stage we're in now as a change process. If you want to give meaning and purpose to people, you have to tell them your direction of travel. You have to tell them what the new workplace or the new product or service that you're providing looks like. We need to enthuse people uh, about the future, whilst also pointing out the challenges. So for me, right now, what we need to do is recognise that we've been forced into a change process and start managing it as a change process would be done in any normal circumstances. And that's all about setting future direction, renegotiating what things look like, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely essential. Anybody who thinks we're going to go back to pre-pandemic conditions anywhere hasn't really taken in the amount of personal transition people have gone through. We're not the same people that we were in January 2020. We're just not. We've gone through something really profound. So let's recognise that. And organisations start saying, OK, we are now implementing a change process here.
0: As Veronica says, none of us are the same people we were at the start of 2020. We need to recognise that and move towards designing a future of work that works for everyone. And thinking about those duties and obligations Veronica mentioned earlier, we all have a role to play in making that happen. So, to finish, let's hear Jane's thoughts on what the future of responsible business looks like.
2: The future of responsible business is for people to define. I think we're in a world of geopolitical, technological, environmental factors which are sweeping us along. But I think as leaders and as employees, we need to remember that we still have the power to choose what sort of organisation we're going to be. And as leaders, I think we need to exercise that choice rather than have it made for us. Thanks for listening to the Responsible
0: Business Leading the Way podcast, produced by the University of Bristol, working with the CIPD. Find out more about the Business School's research, courses and opportunities to collaborate at bristol.ac.uk. And if you want to read the original research this series is based on, search Responsible Business Through Crisis at cipd.org.